0: Text for today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1786. Listen as I read God's Word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cured. When I receive news about you, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, You may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Here ends the reading.
1: Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And uh, if it wasn't during communion, I would, all suggest that we, I would suggest that we all clap when someone comes in at uh, 11.30, <laughs> having overslept or having not changed their clock. You know, I've always thought uh, that whoever decided to do daylight savings was someone who did not have children. Um, yeah, the, uh, the competing... Yeah, I just, farmers, kids, we're all here, we're all awake. I think there was coffee out there. If you need coffee, get up and get some more. And I'll be a little bit more gracious today. You know, I'm used to seeing a number of you sleeping during the message, but uh, today I will be a little bit more gracious with you because we're all a little bit more tired. As we come to this passage today, would you join me in a word of prayer? My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He did miracles in the sight of their ancestors, in the land of Egypt and in the region of Zone. He divided the seas and led them through. He made the waters stand up like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. God's anger rose against them. He put to death the sturdiest among them, cutting down the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they kept on sinning. In spite of all his wonders, they did not believe. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we are so thankful for your abundant mercies that are given to us. Lord, we are thankful for your faithful covenant loyal love that pursues us even in spite of the brokenness and the idolatry that exists inside of each one of us. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we come to this passage and as we see a picture of what life in the family of God looks like through the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you help us to see Jesus more clearly? And would you cause us to leave here today changed people? And we ask this in his name. And all God's people said. Amen. Our families of origin have a profoundly shaping effect on us. For better or for worse, we are profoundly shaped by the family of origin that we have come out of. Of course, there are many things that shape us into the people we are today, and many things that continue to shape us over the course of our lives into the people that we are becoming, but our family of origin is one of those that is most powerful It's in the context of our family that we first learn, whether it's explicitly or implicitly, whether on purpose or by accident, it's in the context of our family that we learn about things like money. It's where our views about sexuality are formed, our views of work and vocation and conflict and relationships. It's where we learn about who God is. It's where we learn about who others are and what it looks like to be in relationship with other people. Our family of origin has a profoundly shaping effect on us. And of course, we can all identify ways that our family of origin has shaped us for the better. And we can all identify ways that we have looked at our family of origin and said, you know, I would like to make a clean break from the beliefs or the patterns or the values that I experience in my family of origin. You would say, you know, when I, when I go out of my family household, I don't live with my parents anymore, When I live on my own, when I go to college, when I start my own family, I'm going to do things differently. And we can all identify ways that we have both been uh, shaped for the better by our family of origin, as well as we can all identify things that we will do different when that time comes. As we look at the text today and we see the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, what we have here is, in a way, we have a picture of what it looks like to make a clean break from parts of our spiritual family of origin. In the previous passage that Pastor Matt taught last week, we hear Paul saying, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Those, the language that's used there of complaining and grumbling and warped and crooked generation That's all language that was used to describe the wilderness generation after they had seen God's miraculous provision and were brought out of Egypt. And so Paul is holding up this example to them, reminding them of the sins of the wilderness generation, and in doing so is giving them a kind of warning, saying, don't repeat the same sins that they did. Don't repeat the same patterns. He holds up their generation as a warning and says, they are a part of your spiritual heritage and there are aspects of that spiritual heritage that spiritual family of origin that you need to make a clean break from and we see this in the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus where we see as Paul holds up their lives and their example we see him showing us offering us a better way offering us an alternative way from the sins of the wilderness generation that we have talked about last week so as we look at their lives today, and as we look at the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, we're going to see a picture, a portrait of the way that life in the family of God ought to be lived. So we'll be thinking together about the question: What does what do their lives teach us about life in the family of God? As we live as members of the family of God, what will characterize us? And we're going to see uh, two characteristics for those of us who live as members of God's family who have made a clean break from that aspect of our spiritual heritage. So the first thing we see in the text is, as we look at the life of Timothy, what we see is that as members of God's family, we practice genuine concern for others. Listen to what Paul says in verse 19. He says, "I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy to you because Timothy's pretty much awesome. <laughs> Timothy's pretty much great. I've got no one else like him who shows genuine concern for your welfare. Everyone else looks out for their own interests. Now just imagine being Epaphroditus. How does Epaphroditus feel as the one who's holding this letter <laughs> who's delivering this to the church in Philippi and is likely the person who, once he got there, read this letter out loud to them. And Epaphroditus is having to read the part where it says, no one else looks out for your welfare. Everyone else looks out for their own interests. And Epaphroditus is like, I'm standing right here. What are you talking about? (laughs) I think we have to recognize that there's some amount of hyperbole in this that what Paul is saying here is he's saying that this kind of genuine concern for others, this is a hard thing to find. But we find it here in Timothy. And this is where we begin to see Timothy ex- exemplifying or demonstrating, modeling some of the character of Christ. Everyone else looks out for their own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So notice the contrast between the two. Everyone looks out for their own interests, but Timothy is different. Timothy shows concern for your interests. Timothy has served alongside of me, Paul, in the work of the ministry. Now the word that's translated served here, uh, the the root word of that verb is the word servant, which is shocking, right? (laughs) Servant, served. But I think what's important for us to recognize is that this is the exact same word that Paul has used just a few verses earlier when he says about Jesus, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So he says Jesus is a servant. He humbled himself. He became a servant and showed concern for our welfare And then he uses uses the verb form of that word here to describe Timothy. Timothy served in gospel ministry alongside of Paul. And in doing so, showed genuine concern for their interests. So the pattern that we see is that Jesus took on the role of a servant and showed genuine concern for others. That's what Paul has showed us in this Christ hymn that came just previous to this passage. And then we also see that like Jesus, Timothy took on the role of a servant and showed genuine concern for others. In fact, this is kind of built into the definition of being a servant is you're concerned about the needs of other people. That's what being a servant is. And we see Timothy modeling this for us. He's modeling the character of Christ who took on the role of a servant, showed genuine concern for us. Timothy models that and we too, as we see Timothy's example, are called to also have the same character among us. We are also called to take on the role of a servant and show genuine concern for others. Now, showing genuine concern for other people, uh, it begins as an attitude. It begins as a disposition of the heart, as it were. It begins as a way of viewing other people. So we know this because Paul has said earlier, he says, In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So this valuing of other people... This is a a fundamental shift in our value system. But it doesn't just stay in the realm of values. Paul's not just saying you need to have this sort of uh, intellectual way of just looking and thinking about people. No, that genuine concern for others, it begins as a set of values that we have, but then it expresses itself in the way that we act. We actually back up the concern we have for other people with the way that we live. Now, there's some challenges that we face. As we think about being a community of people who are genuinely concerned about others, there are some some barriers to this, some challenges to this. One of those is that we have all, who sit in this room, have been raised in from the very youngest age. We are born into a culture that has given us, has shaped us in a me-first way of viewing the world. I think of, there's a commercial that I have seen over the last year or so that just really in my mind sticks out as like the example of this. It's a cell phone provider commercial, and I'm not going to name the provider, uh, but it's this lady who's up on this big screen, I think in Times Square, and there's all these people down there, and and this lady gets on the screen and she says, you know, after the last year or so, we all deserve something new. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, the last couple years have been really hard, but it's like, yeah, you know, it's been really hard. You know, you know what you really need right now, what to really take the edge off, is if you spend thousand dollars on a cell phone. <laughs> you know, that's really going to make you happy after what you've just experienced, right? But, but you get the idea. In fact, our entire—not not our entire—our uh, our economic system is largely dependent upon us. Thinking and living this way, <laughs> right? The 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 kind of consumeristic culture we live in banks on the fact that we are primarily in our own, uh, apart from the transforming work of God, we are always concerned first about our own interests. And all of us are saying, "Yeah, you know what? It has been hard, so I'm going to go get a new cell phone." <laughs> so this is this is just the the culture that we live in, and. Sure, there are bad things about that. There are good things about a consumerist culture. I mean, the access to resources that have never been had by people in the history of the world. There are good things about living in our current economy. And then there is the shadow side of it. But this is one of the challenges to being other-oriented and being concerned about the needs of others is that we are continually taught you need to look out for number one. You add to this, the reason that that kind of economic system works in the first place is because there's the poison of sin that has turned us inwards the poison of sin that is inside of every single human heart has turned us inwards which means that we don't naturally think of others more value others above ourselves we are naturally inclined to look out first and foremost for ourselves and so these two things, things—the the, sort of the, the environment that we live in, as well as the, uh, the sin nature that exists inside of each of us, this creates a significant barrier to us actually being the kind of people who show genuine concern for others. So maybe just summarize it like this. If we are going to be people who are genuinely concerned for others, there has to be a fundamental shift in our system of values. God himself has to change our hearts so that we can think outside of ourselves first and think about other people. Now, before we go any further, let me just clarify. I just want to make this really clear. Okay, when we talk about being concerned about the needs of others, uh, Paul is not saying you should abandon healthy self-care. He's not saying you should think poorly of yourself. He's not saying you should abandon healthy boundaries He's not talking about that. What we're talking about is a a, a disposition that primarily looks first and foremost to our own interests. And of course, it should be assumed that we wisely go about being concerned about other people and do so in a way that's healthy for us and for them. Absolutely. But in order for us to be genuinely concerned about other people, we have to have this fundamental shift in our values. We have to, in a way, we have to fall out of love with ourselves. That's essentially what has to happen. We see Jesus teaching this to his disciples in the book of Mark, chapter 10, where two of his disciples uh, come to Jesus and they say, hey, you know, when your kingdom comes, uh, we would like to be in the the right and the left-hand position. So we want to be number one and number two in your kingdom. We want to be in the position of highest honor. We want to be in the position of authority. We want to be in the position where we get to sort of sit over people, rule over them, and then Jesus brings his disciples Together and completely flips their view of greatness and power on its head. And he says, You know that those who regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. That word slave is the same word that's used of Jesus, where it says he took on the form of a servant or a slave and it's the verb that is used to talk about Timothy essentially becoming a slave, making himself a slave. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is completely blowing up their paradigm of what true greatness really is. And he's saying it's built into the fabric of the universe. This is built into the very heart of God, the Son of Man did not come in order to be served, but to serve others. And so this is, as his followers, how can we have a me-first way of living in the world when the one on whom our lives are built is someone who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for others? And so we see this radical shift in values we see in Jesus, and, and this works its way out in our lives. Certainly it begins as an attitude, but then it works its way out, in innumerable innumerable different ways. As you think about your workplace, your school, your home, your neighborhood, as you think about your family, you think about all these different spheres of life where you live, work, learn, and play, there are an inexhaustible number of ways that this concern for other people should get and can get worked out in those different contexts. So in other words, Showing concern for others is not just something that we sort of add into our already busy schedule. It's not something we just sort of make time for. It's the way we go about doing everything. Having this mindset of being concerned about other people is not just another thing that we do. It's the way we approach everything because of the example that Jesus has set in showing concern for us. So as members of God's family, this is what characterizes us. We practice genuine concern for others. But the second thing we see, based on the example of Epaphroditus here, is that as members of God's family, we give our lives for the one who gave his life for us. Listen, starting in verse 25. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not only on him but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him, again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So what we learn in these verses is that if Paul had his way, if he got his first choice, he would have sent Timothy back to the Philippian church instead of Epaphroditus. But he thought that for a number of reasons, it was, in this particular case, it was more helpful, it was more um, prudent for him to send back Epaphroditus. And here's what we know. We know that uh, the church in Philippi heard that Paul was in prison, that he was under house arrest, and that he was in need of financial assistance. And so they sent this guy, Epaphroditus, as sort of uh, a member of their congregation, to go be with Paul for an extended season. We don't know how long that was. He was planning to be there. But they sent him to deliver a financial gift and to be there and to care for Paul and to help him in the ministry that he was doing from that place in prison. So Epaphroditus set out on that journey, and I think it was not very far into that journey. What happened is he became ill. And the text says that he was so ill that he almost died. So he was probably not very far from, from Philippi, where he could have turned back and played it safe and just gone right back and, and you know just kind of abandoned the mission from the beginning. But what he did do was something different. He chose to risk his life, the text says, To make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now that's not that's not a dig at the Philippian church to say you know he's giving me what you couldn't give me. Uh, That's just a way of him saying you all collectively cannot be physically present with me the way that he can. There's there's something you simply can't provide for me that Epaphroditus can, and he risked his life for that. Now that word that's translated here, risked, that is a first century gambling term. So Epaphroditus quite literally rolled the dice with his life. He made a calculated risk and said, okay, I'm I'm this far into the journey. I could go back home. I could probably make it. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it all the way there. But he risked his life. He He took a gamble. And he made it all the way. Thankfully, he made it all the way. But sometime during that journey, the church in Philippi got wind of the news that he was sick and almost died. And they were very upset about it, they were very distressed about it, because they cared for him. And so because of all these circumstances, Paul says, I would like to send Timothy to you, but instead, it's more important for Epaphroditus to come to you, so that you can see each other, so you can be reunited with one another, and there can be mutual sort of encouragement and benefit from that. And he says, welcome people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, And this is where we see in this language here of he almost died for the work of Christ. This is where we see a clear connection between the the conduct, the actions, the life of Epaphroditus and the character of Christ, the character of Jesus. Because it says, uh, more literally translated um, in the original language. Come on, I can do it. Verse 30, where it talks about him almost dying for the work of Christ, literally translated, it says, because of the work of Christ, he came to the point of death. This is the exact same phrase that Paul uses to talk about Jesus in verse eight, where he says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So because of the work of Christ, he, Epaphroditus, came to the point of death. The exact same phrase Phrase to the point of death is used about Jesus to say he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. So you see Paul using this language to help the Philippian church hear and understand that Epaphroditus' actions are being modeled after what he's seen in the person of Jesus. He was willing to give up his very life for the sake of gospel ministry. And so Epaphroditus is held up as this example of what it looks like to give our lives to the one who has given his life for us. Jesus was willing to give up his very life for the advance of God's mission. Epaphroditus was willing to give up his very life for the gospel to go forward, for people to come to know about Jesus. And in the same way, we are called to have the same attitude among ourselves as well. We are called to be willing to give up our very lives to give up our very selves to God for the advance of the gospel in our world. And as we do this, that's going to come with some amount of risk. There will be risk associated with this. I, I think that that's, when it says he risked his life to make up for the help you, you yourselves couldn't give me, I think that may be for us uh, maybe more of the point of application. Okay, there There is risk in us Becoming followers of Jesus and living in line with our convictions. As we live out our discipleship to Jesus, there may be times where we experience persecution and difficulty and may face death because of our belief in Christ. Uh, we don't experience that a whole lot in our context, thank God. But the application still is there that he risked his life in order to give the help that you yourselves could not give me. It's always risky. To live out your discipleship to Jesus. And it was the same for Epaphroditus, and it's the same that is true for us today. That living in obedience to Jesus always involves death and risk. Living in obedience to Jesus, it always involves risk and death. Jesus tells this to his disciples in Mark chapter eight where he called them to himself and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. So again, you see Jesus taking what was common sense to them and completely flipping it on its head and saying, in the kingdom of God, things work differently. In the kingdom of God, the, the one who wants to be great is going to be the servant of all. In the kingdom of God, if you want to find your life, you don't get your life by searching after it. You, give, you find your life by giving it up. And so we see, again, this reversal of values that exists in the kingdom of God. So the life of obedience to Jesus is a life of continual dying to ourselves, a daily taking up of our cross, sort of metaphorically, taking up our cross and following Jesus. And as we die to ourselves daily... And as we then take up the value system of God's kingdom, that is going to provide us with situations that are going to be risky. It's a risky thing to initiate spiritual conversation with a friend or with a neighbor. You know, you've got the questions about like, what's this person going to think? Are they going to be completely weirded out by this? Are they going to be angry about this? Is this going to make our relationship super awkward? (laughs) You know, you may be thinking, I have to live next to this person for I don't know how many more years. Do I really want to risk that relationship being weird because I wanted to talk about matters of faith? There's always a kind of risk that's involved with that. There's always a kind of risk with your teachers or your classmates coming to know that you're a follower of Jesus. Because there, there may be things that they believe to be true about God or believed to be true about Christians of the church, and they would now associate those things with you. And you may be saying to yourself, I I don't believe in that God either. (laughs) That's not the way that the church ought to be. That's not what following Jesus means. But what they think about Christianity is now superimposed on top of you, and you get lumped in with all the bad examples of what they think a Christian is in their mind with all the bad examples of what they think a church is in their mind, and there's a risk to that. There's a significant risk to your reputation and your friendships if people find out that you are a follower of Jesus. There's always risk in when you love people in your workplace and do so explicitly in the name of Jesus. Not being like weird about it, but just being normal and giving a reason for why you love people the way you do. And not being afraid to tell people that you are treating them this way because of what God has done for you. There's always risk associated with that. You have to work with these people. There, you, maybe in your workplace, there's some sort of policy regarding uh, religious conversation. And so things come up as you're talking. And there's, there's the risk of, okay, my workplace has this policy where they say we're not really supposed to talk about spiritual things, you know, we're not supposed to, you know, be proselytizing, quote-unquote, but then this conversation came up, and what do I do? If my supervisor finds out that I had this conversation, I could be in hot water because I had a spiritual conversation that I, quote-unquote, shouldn't have had according to the policy that is in place at my work. There's always risk involved in that. There's risk in choosing not to compromise your character. And your integrity and your values, when you are pressured by either the industry, whether you're pressured by the company, the specific manager or boss that's over top of you, there's always a risk in saying, okay, I'm not going to compromise on the things that I believe to be true. And that may cost you a promotion, that may cost you your job, it may cost you uh, opportunities, it may cost you all kinds of things. And this is just the reality that life lived in obedience to Jesus always comes with a certain kind of risk. There is no life of following Jesus that's easy and safe and comfortable. That's just the reality of it. This is what life in the kingdom of God is like. And and we give ourselves to him because he gave himself for us. Because we're captivated by the person and the work of Jesus. You know, as we we look at these examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus and we see them exemplifying this, uh, this concern for others, as we see them exemplifying the humility to think outside of themselves, to be genuinely concerned about other people, and willing to die, put their life on the line for the sake of the advance of the gospel, we just have to recognize that this is not, this is not exactly the easiest life. <laughs> yeah, the, life of, the life of risk and the life of dying to self daily, this is not exactly the easiest way to live. Okay? There are other ways of living and other ways of being in the world that are far less risky, that require you to sacrifice absolutely nothing, that keep you sort of out of the spotlight, you're, you're not really the center of attention, you can just sort of blend in and go along with whatever, and you don't have to participate with all of it, but you don't really have to take a stand and, and, and risk anything in any way, right? There's a way of being in the world that requires essentially zero risk. That is not the life of following Jesus, This is a life that is filled with risk, filled with dying to self, and we do it because we love him. We do it because we look to the person of Jesus and we see that he showed genuine concern for us. We look to what the Bible says to us and we see that when we were dead in our sins, when we were spiritually dead because of the idolatry and the sin that exists inside of us, that poison... God looked upon us and had mercy and had pity on us. To the degree that he was willing to take on human flesh, to identify with us in the brokenness of our world, to accompany us here, to experience all of the mess that we have created. He was willing to take on human flesh and to identify with us in that. And in doing so, showed concern for us. He heard the cries of his people, as the Old Testament says, and he came to rescue them. We see that Jesus took on human flesh and accompanied us and then took on the form of a servant, a slave, and then suffered and died. He was willing to give up his life so that we who are spiritually dead could be made alive. And this is, this is central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that we recognize what Jesus has done for us. And as we do so, we don't look at it and say, man, you know, this is really a bummer that I have to take up a life that's kind of risky man, this is such a disappointment that, you know, I just really want to be selfish, but I guess if God tells me I can't, then I can't. Like, that's a person who, who is not seen or experienced or deeply and intimately knows the love of God. When the Spirit helps us to see who Jesus is, the way that he showed genuine concern for us to the point of giving his life for ours, The way that we view him, the way we view our world is completely different. We don't give ourselves to him because we have to. We give ourselves to him because we've seen how deeply he loves us, how faithful he is to us, and we love him. And we're willing to give up our lives. We're willing to take risks. We're willing to show concern for others. And it doesn't always come fast, Okay? It doesn't always, it's not always the case that, that you have this experience of, of coming to know the love of God and then all of a sudden you're like, my life is completely different and I'm constantly always thinking about other people. That's not how it works. <laughs> right? We'll spend the rest of our lives learning what it means to continually die to ourselves. We'll spend the rest of our lives learning what it means to try and show concern for others. We'll spend the rest of our lives being called to take risks, failing, Choosing to play it safe, choosing to compromise, experiencing the love of God, and then doing it all over again. This is what it means to be his follower, is to experience this over the course of your lifetime. And it's not exactly the easiest thing, but we do it because we love him. Because we look at the message of the gospel, we see him showing genuine concern for us, being willing to suffer and to die for us, and so we are glad to give ourselves to him. And so what it means for us to cultivate a life of showing genuine concern for others but it means for us to actually be people who are willing to take risk, who are actually willing to give up our very lives, if need be, for the sake of Christ. The way we do that is not primarily by looking to Timothy and Epaphroditus. They are absolutely 100% examples for us, and we ought to be inspired by their lives. We ought to look at their lives and say, I want that to be said of me that they show genuine concern, that everybody else is looking out for their own interest, but this person is so different. It should be inspiring, and yet ultimately we are not patterning our lives after Timothy or Epaphroditus, we're patterning our lives after Jesus. He's the one to whom their lives point. He is the greater example, the truer example of showing genuine concern for others. He is the greater and truer example of laying down your life so that someone else can thrive and flourish and experience new life. And so we pattern our lives after Jesus and we look to him. That's how we cultivate this life. As we look to Jesus, we remember what he's done for us. And over time, the spirit begins to work that deep into the core of our being. And over time, that changes us. And sure, there'll be moments where we have sort of aha moments and there's, there's radical transformation that happens quickly. But for the most part, it's a slow process of daily learning to die to ourselves. Daily looking to Jesus. And one of the ways that we look to Jesus every week that is so formative for us, is we come to the communion table. We come to the communion table every single week as a way of demonstrating our our faith in Christ, where we have to stand up out of our seat and physically walk forward and say, yes, I, I, I trust you, I believe in you. And we physically take the elements and we demonstrate with our bodies that we have given our allegiance to Jesus. And as we come forward, we're reminded, as we reach out to take the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, we are reminded of what he's done for us, that he gave up his life and in doing so showed concern for us. He gave his life for us and so we get to come forward and celebrate and remember what Jesus has done for us. And over time that cultivates a life of genuine concern for others and it cultivates a life where we are willing to die to ourselves and take risks to see the advance of the gospel move forward. So as we come to the communion table today, I want to invite you to uh, just bow for a moment of silent confession and reflection, and then we will continue. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought in word and deed by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We confess, Lord, the ways that we have lived selfishly, the ways that we have lived with our own interests, with our own concerns first and have given little, if any, thought to the needs and the concerns of others around us. We confess, Lord, the ways that we have been blind to the needs of our neighbors or our friends or those who are part of our own church family. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have been consumed with our own activity. Forgive us for the ways, Lord, that our schedules have been so packed, filled with stuff that we simply don't have time even if we wanted to invest in people, to be in people and to show genuine concern for them. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have been too cautious. For the ways that we have shrinked back from taking risk. Even small risks. Lord, forgive us for the ways in in our workplaces or in our schools or in our homes where we have shrunk back from opportunities to have spiritual conversation because we were afraid of what the consequence would be. Lord, we pray that in your mercy you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are and that we that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Now God's people said. Amen.